Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. Living in the tropics has its benefits, but sometimes we pay a price for living in such a sunny place. The cost can be a high one in the form of skin cancer. Is there a simple solution for protection? I think the sunscreen market is, is very robust. I think there's tremendous number of, of sunscreen brands that do a great job of offering protection. Meteorologist Brent Cameron will have the story. Plus, a storm has come and gone. A grass fire has scorched a town. People are picking up after an earthquake. We all need help. So we don't necessarily respond to every disaster, but we try to maximize our impact on the disasters that we can respond to. Meet an organization that has stepped up to the challenge. Meteorologist Erica Delgado with that report. Whether or not, we'll be right back. When the tropics heat up, you can stay cool. Because the chief works right here. Seven's chief meteorologist, Phil Farrow. He's been doing this for nearly 30 years. As soon as we get information, we bring it to you instantly. Wilma, Katrina, Irma, he guided us safely through them all. That guy never sleeps, but that's so you can sleep easier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Weather or Not. I'm meteorologist Brent Cameron. Florida is, of course, known as the Sunshine State. But there are consequences to getting too much sun exposure. Joining me today to discuss this is Dr. Elisa Herman, skin cancer surgeon in Coral Gables. Dr. Herman, welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me today. Very happy to have you here. So tell us, you know, a small amount of sun exposure, as we all know, can be fine and even healthy. Too much, obviously, can be dangerous. How do we get a balance there? Sure. And that's a great question because, of course, living here in Florida, you know, we're exposed to sun every day. Um, and so, you know, good daily sun protection practices really need to be part of everyone's daily routine. So I think the challenge that we all face is, you know, how do we live in this climate and protect ourselves? And I think the truth of the matter is, you know, there's some core things that we need to do every day uh, before we leave our homes that protect mm -hmm. ourselves. And I think the one that we all sort of know and it's been talked about a lot is, is daily sun protection. And that really for me is, is not just the obvious, which is sunscreen, but it's also protective clothing. It's also eyewear. It's also minimizing your exposure to ultraviolet radiation during the highest peak hours, as we call them, between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. when the sun is at its strongest. As I tell my patients, it's not that, you know, we want you to stay indoors and not enjoy this beautiful environment that we all live in, which is why we live here. But it's about being smart and how to protect yourselves. If you were going to go to the beach, it's not just enough to put on sunscreen before you leave the house. You have to reapply it every two hours. But it really means that if you're going to be in the water that you have to reapply probably more frequently because it washes off and at some point. What about what we all hear about the SPF, the sun protection factor? What's the necessary number to really have adequate protection. So quite a few years ago, the American Academy of Dermatology, which is our academic parent organization, put out guidelines. And the guidelines state that really everyone should be wearing at least SPF 30 on a daily basis. And, and that recommendation is for all adults and all children greater than the age of six months. 
Now, if you're going to be indoors and you really rarely ever get outside, for example, let's say you live in a northern climate, SPF 15 probably is adequate to just those areas that are chronically exposed, areas that you can't cover, like the face, the tops of the hands, the ears, that sort of thing. For those of us in Florida, I think it makes sense to wear SPF 30 every day. And just so you know, these numbers, they're hard to really break down and, and, and for people to understand what the, the number itself means. Mm-hmm. What, what that number means is it means it, it gives you how much time it'll take for the sun's rays to produce a burn once you've applied a product versus having no sunscreen on. So SPF 30, what that really means is it only take about 30 minutes of no exposure to produce a burn versus having it. I think the sunscreen market is, is very robust. I think there's tremendous number of, of sunscreen brands that do a great job of offering protection. And there are independent organizations like Consumer Reports that every year ranks the top sunscreens that people can look that up for recommendations or, you know, or go into your local pharmacy and see, you know, the wide array of brands that are available. Doctor, I recently read that the American Cancer Society says that a study found one out of three men and one out of four women say they don't use any sun protection at all. Is that surprising to you? And and what's the stigma? (laughs) You know, it's, it's only not surprising because I've known this data for quite some time and I do see it in my practice every day because my practice is solely skin cancer surgery based. So every patient coming in to see me already has a skin cancer and a lot of them feel like they want to repent and say, I, I know I should wear sunscreen. I, I don't wear sunscreen or the, the spouse will come in and say he doesn't wear sunscreen or she doesn't wear sunscreen. I think the stigma is, again, part, part of its formulation. Mm-hmm. A lot of the male patients I, I have will tell me that they don't like, you know, the fruity banana smell of their sunscreen, or it stings their eyes, or mm-hmm. they'll be playing golf with their friends, and it will drip down into their eyes and sting their eyes. But again, I think that, you know, the sunscreen companies have done a great job of addressing the needs of, of different populations, you know, the teenage population that's concerned about acne formation, so they don't want a product that's going to aggravate or be too oily. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, there's such a wide array of choices that there's really no, I hate to say excuse, but there really is no reason for someone to not find a sunscreen that, that they can wear that, that they find is tolerable. Doctor, what about the people who have jobs outdoors? Well, certainly they're much more at risk because skin cancer is really caused by chronic cumulative exposure. So it's not that one bad sunburn you had last summer. It's more how much you've accumulated over many, many years. So nobody has a bad sunburn this summer and then comes to me in October with a skin cancer. This is years and years of exposure. And then the consequences of what UV radiation does to DNA and the the DNA damage that then can lead to skin cancer. Are there certain demographics of the population that are going to be more susceptible for having issues and potential development of skin cancer? Definitely. I think that the patient population that's probably most at risk are those sort of the more fair you are. So the more fair skin, the more light, the lighter your skin is, the lighter your eyes are, the lighter your hair is, you have less melanin. Melanin is, is the brown substance in our cells that gives us the color of our skin. And also when, when it's exposed to ultraviolet radiation, to sunlight, it darkens. And that's what gives us our tan. So people that are darker skin have more melanin and melanin is protective. It actually covers the DNA in the cell, which is why the risk of skin cancer, although present in all skin colors and all populations, 
is significantly less the darker your skin is because you have more of that protective effect. But as I tell all my patients, don't have that false sense of security that you don't need to wear sunblock just because you have a darker skin tone. Dr. Herman, what are you seeing on a daily basis here in 2022? Are the rates of skin cancer in the U.S. and here in South Florida on the rise or are they getting a little better? I wish I could say they were getting better, but I will, but I'm, I'm not happy to report that they're not. Skin cancer, as, long as, all, as well as all other types of cancer, are all on the rise. The, the American Cancer Society says that one in two men and one in three women will develop some form of cancer at some point in their lifetime. Wow. Those are astonishing figures. Um, so, you know, we can talk about skin cancer as an isolated topic, but I will tell you that just cancer in general, you know, is on the rise. And I think a lot of this has to do with, you know, sort of our overall health, our you know, what we're eating, our, our exposures, whether it's to ultraviolet radiation, which is one form of a toxic exposure or other types of toxic chemicals, pesticides, things like that. Um, all these things contribute to our overall health and well-being. Based on those alarming statistics, Dr. Herman, should we be screening regularly or wait until there's something suspicious like a mole or a spot that we actually find on our skin? It's a great question. I mean, I, I would say that probably most people that live in South Florida have some sort of a, a relationship with a dermatologist. Certainly if you have a, a family history of skin cancer, that should prompt people to have an initial screening, particularly those with melanoma, family history of melanoma. They typically get told by their dermatologist that their immediate family should also be screened. And if there is a diagnosis, someone's diagnosed with melanoma, skin cancer, what's their treatment look like? It's going to vary, I realize, but what would a typical treatment be and what would the chances of survival be? The answers to that question differ based upon the diagnosis. So basal cell carcinoma has a different answer versus melanoma, for example. But I will say, you know, as a general rule, the earlier things that are caught, you know, the greater the outcome. In fact, when I was in training 20 years ago, when people had melanoma and particularly advanced melanoma, it, it was really a death sentence. It was, it, it was horrific. And with the advent of immunotherapy in the last decade, patients with stage four melanoma are surviving five, 10 plus years beyond their original diagnosis, which was unheard of when I was doing my residency training. Remembering back to the 1990s, I grew up in the Midwest. It was really common for a lot of the people I was growing up with to go to an indoor tanning facility. How much of a problem is that today? So the indoor tanning is such a popular thing. And you know that there are actually universities and college campuses where they have indoor tanning facilities available to students. Mm -hmm. The truth about indoor tanning is that there is no form of a safe tan at all. And I think that's what people are led to believe with indoor tanning. The risk of melanoma, for example, is increased by 75% when someone's used a tanning bed only once before the age of 35. Tanning bed use increases your risk of squamous cell by over 50% and your, and your risk of developing basal cell carcinoma by almost 25%. The World Organization did some research back in 2009, and actually the, the BBC did a nice report on this, and their whole title was sunbeds are as bad as smoking to really drive home to people that this is not safe. In fact, just two years ago, the American Academy of Ophthalmology 
released information to inform patients that a tanning bed produces a hundred times more ultraviolet radiation than you would get if you if you just sat in the sun. So, for example, five minutes of being in a tanning bed is equivalent to being in the sun for an hour. Pretty alarming data. In fact, back in 2013, there finally was regulation on tanning beds here in the U.S., where they classify tanning beds as being medical devices. And if you are considered either a class one or class two medical device, which tanning beds are, what that means is that there's a moderate or high risk for developing skin cancer. So it was finally made kind of public. In fact, in many states across the nation, you have to get parental permission if you're under 18 to use a tanning bed. That, that was a landmark, really, because this was really the first time that a government organization was really doing a good pub, you know, public service and informing people that this really is a problem. And it's such a problem that we're going to restrict people's access to, to this type of technology. So now combating the problem, doctor, is the future bright? What yes. new and exciting treatments are there in the <laughs> pipeline? In terms of treatment, I wouldn't say there's anything new in the medical office necessarily, but I think as we say with all cancer, I think prevention is always the best. So I I like to always give patients things that they can do at home that sort of empower them to take care of their own health. You know, we always hear about the Mediterranean diet, but do you know why that's so helpful for patients and why that's so anti-cancer? It's pretty easy to understand if you actually analyze the Mediterranean diet. It's full of fruits and vegetables, olive oil, and typically fish like salmon. And mm-hmm. if you analyze what is in those items, you're looking at lots of antioxidants from all the brightly colored fruits and vegetables, anti-inflammatory components and compounds from your olive oil and your, you know, all the omega-3s that you get in the salmon. So really there's been a whole school of thought that started over a decade ago that inflammation is sort of the root cause of many diseases. So anything that's anti-inflammatory is not only going to be good to prevent skin cancer, but it's also going to be good to prevent all kinds of disease and just be good for your overall health. The New England Journal of Medicine published really a landmark paper that talked about a vitamin B supplement, nicotinamide to be specific. And that data that came out of Australia a couple of years prior showed that in patients that were at moderate to high risk of developing skin cancer, if they simply took a supplement vitamin B, nicotinamide twice a day, they decreased their risk of developing skin cancer. All right. All this so important as we practice sun safety. Thank you for your information so much to to think about living here in South Florida or really anywhere. Dr. Elisa Herman, skin cancer surgeon in Coral Gables. Doctor, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Brent. When we return, a company of helping hands. Severe weather can strike any time. And when it does, Seven's got you covered. 24-7. We'll see storms developing. We have a long line of rainfall here. We are the Storm Station. Seven News. Welcome back. A city is dealing with a major disaster. We could all use some help. But who? Erica Delgado lends a hand. For many, storm preparation is a part of life through the hurricane seasons, especially here in South Florida. And unless one has actually experienced a direct hit from some form of natural disaster, cleanup of the aftermath is somewhat of an unknown. And those familiar with aftermath cleanup know that it takes an entire village to help remove any form of danger and help return to the idea of normalcy. 
And sometimes that village comprises of organizations that dedicate their time and risk their lives to help out. So what are some of these organizations that help out without wanting anything in return? Team Rubicon, a nonprofit organization, is one of those, many of those organizations that dedicate their time and resources to helping those in need, all on a voluntary basis. I had the privilege to speak with Kayla Hall, Operations Associate at Team Rubicon for the North Florida area to get a better understanding of what this selfless organization is all about. Hi, Kayla. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Hi, thanks for having us on today. So Team Rubicon, an interesting organization I've been reading a little bit about, and they do so much for many in the most desperate times. Tell us a little bit about the history of Team Rubicon and how it all got started. Um, so Team Rubicon is a we're a nonprofit humanitarian organization that serves communities uh, by mobilizing veterans, first responders, and civilians to help people prepare, respond, and recover from disasters. Team Rubicon first responded to um, Haiti. That's where we got our start. So the first eight gray shirts arrived in Haiti to respond to a 7.0 magnitude earthquake. Um, and there was a river that was deemed too dangerous to cross due to the conditions. The team of volunteers called themselves Team Rubicon in reference to the Rubicon River, river in Rome. By crossing their Rubicon, the team acknowledged that they were committed to their task of helping those in need. When Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon at the head of his legions and marched on Rome, it marked a point of no return. The phrase crossing the Rubicon has since survived in reference to any group committing itself to a risky course of action. So that explains how the name Rubicon came about, crossing that river now. So how does it all work? Does the organization receive calls or does your team just show up when you think assistance may be needed at the time? So we've got teams of volunteers. Uh, we Our volunteer base is about 150,000 volunteers across the United States and Canada. Oh, wow. um, and we call them gray shirts. They're made up of first responders, veterans, trained civilians. So what happens is our teams monitor these storms about 24 hours a day. We've got situational units that pull weather reports. We're constantly watching that. As an operations associate, there is, you know, one in just about every state or in, in every geographical area. We maintain relationships and our volunteer leaders maintain relationships with emergency managers across the country. This gives us the opportunity to reach out to them proactively. If there is something that is going to happen that is going to impact an area that we can proactively respond to, we will start that process on our end. It starts to kind of mobilize everybody, gets everybody's eyes onto that area, and then we go from there. But we, we work very closely with the local communities to make sure that we're using our resources appropriately, that we're being invited in, and that we're responding in the areas that need it the most. So that's pretty cool. I mean, I in my mind, I thought maybe it was kind of an after the math, you know, let's send civilians or, or veterans or, you know, your staff in. But now I see that you're monitoring everything even before some of these planned natural disasters like hurricanes, for example. Yeah, absolutely. We spend a lot of time um, on weather apps, on different uh, informational forums to try to pull that information as soon as possible but we don't just respond after a disaster. 
a lot of what we do is mitigation. And so we try to help communities prepare for those disasters and to help take away some of those hazards before a storm, before the season. So we have what's called blue skies and gray skies. During our blue skies times is when we're doing those mitigation projects, service projects, we're helping the community, we're working alongside of those community members. You know, most of our volunteers, they serve within the communities that they live, and it's to help everybody build resiliency. So some of our mitigation that we do, you know, the West Branch, their area gets hit with a lot of wildfires. So they do a lot of wildfire mitigation. In the Southeast, flooding is always a concern, especially with storm season rolling in. We do mitigation uh, projects with communities to help prepare for that. Um, And then we have the response side of things where we do come in afterwards, and that falls in our gray skies. And that is what we're constantly monitoring for those storms. We're operating at two different speeds all of the time, our blue skies getting everybody prepared, and then our gray skies to send out our volunteers to help those communities rebuild. So it's kind of like a proactive and a reactive staff where, you know, the blue skies and the gray skies. That is very cool. And I know you mentioned you had staff around the country and even into Canada, but what are some areas that Team Rubicon has uh, deployed response units to in the past? So we we have responded everywhere. The there was just an operation in Ottawa, Canada that just got demobilized, you know, so the Kentucky, Tennessee tornadoes that happened over the Christmas holiday time, that was a huge response that we did throughout the southeast. The wildfires in the West Branch are are another big one that we've done. So it just depends on where it's needed. But like I said, we try to shift our resources to be best used. Um, So we don't necessarily respond to every disaster, but we try to maximize our impact on the disasters that we can respond to. Now, earlier you mentioned you deployed response units for the uh, earthquake in Haiti a few years back. Kind of walk me through it on the gray sky part of it. Aftermath, you know, sending response units in. How exactly does that even go about? Like, you know, you, you walk into a place here where obviously it's just complete destruction. Like, where do you even begin when you get to an area like this? So the Haiti earthquake was a little different because it was the first response that Team Rubicon had ever taken on. Um, Since then, that was 11 years ago, I believe. Since then, our organization, our standards and our procedures have drastically changed. At the root of it, it's all the same now. So we, we recognize that something is going to happen. We start to mobilize a team on the back end. We're getting people ready. We're having the conversations of what's needed, what resources might have to be moved ahead of the storm. Then the storm hits, right? We've we've got that devastation that happens. We are now surveying that devastation. We have teams that actually go out with specific instructions and checklists that help us determine the scope of work. Is this something that we can take on? If Is it something that the local community is already handling on their own? If it's something that they're handling, then we kind of step back and see where we can use those resources elsewhere. But if it's identified that we need to come into that area, we send out those teams to do site surveying, reconnaissance, and information building. We then pass that information up 
And if we are going to stand up an operation, we now know, do we need Sawyers? Do we need heavy equipment? Are our members going, are our volunteers going to be doing volunteer management? Are we going to have other organizations working alongside of us? All of that information is gathered in that 24 to 48 hours after a disaster has occurred. We try to set up these operations as quickly as possible, obviously to try to help the community bounce back as quickly as possible. Our teams go through training for all of these informational teams that go out ahead of an actual response. And that gives us a a big picture view of what it looks like on the ground. Right. And then as far as those actual response units that are sent out now, what's your manpower like for a specific, and I'm not just, you know, I know the Haiti earthquake you mentioned was the first one, but like fast forward, all the areas that you have deployed units, you know, you said Kentucky and Tennessee, or even out West, if there's one big area where you're really like focusing all of your attention with manpower from other branches, move on to maybe that one specific area. Yeah, uh, so we have a lot of cross-communication in our organization. Obviously, we can't live in silos in the Southeast, West, and North. If we don't have those cross-communications, then we're not going to be able to, to respond the way that we should. But we also need to be very careful about burning out our volunteers and burning out our staff and burning out those command and general staff that go out to run these operations. So the way we do it is we... When we send those first initial teams out, they see where they can set up a base. What's the capacity like? What is the overall scope of work? How long do we anticipate being out there? And then what our mobilization team does is they break it down into waves. We'll send one wave of 20 people for two weeks and get as much done. And then to give them the opportunity to change their socks, Um, we will bring them home and send out another wave of people. So there is a constant turnover and refresh of our volunteers, but our volunteers, depending on the response operation, can come from anywhere in Team Rubicon. We can have people from Canada fly down to help with those responses if that's the type of response that we need. How do you get these volunteers? Do it's just you know in in the community, or do they just know of this organization, you know, Team Rubicon and everything that they stand for and they've done? Uh, how does it all go about? Like, how do the volunteers actually join your response units? Yeah, so Team Rubicon, we've got a pretty big footprint in the disaster response world, and our goal is to be more organizationally connected within those local communities. So. Our volunteer leaders and our operations associates, we spend a lot of time building relationships and setting up events during our blue skies. We're doing training events and maybe we'll hold a social and that will kind of help spread the word of us. But we also take part in, we have different partners that help kind of spread our name out there. We do different informational events and things like that. Obviously, teamrubicon.org is a a big one that we pull people in. QR codes, as fancy as they are now, have become (laughs) our big thing. Um, And they're kind of everywhere. But there's a lot. We're we're drumming up more information about Team Rubicon and trying to get it out there. But most of the time, it's word of mouth is is how we draw those volunteers in. A lot of times, we see people who are looking for that community, right? A lot of First responders are veterans who 
have left the military or an, you know, an organization such as the military and are looking for that community. They're looking for that opportunity to give back that source of service for them. And that's the big thing that you see with our volunteers is they're here because they want to serve. They want to serve these communities. It's easy to have that conversation with somebody who is service-minded and say, hey, Team Rubicon has done this for me, or Team Rubicon has helped this community. It's not really an organization that people turn their nose up at because at the very root of it, we're just here to help. Right. So it's, it's, it's kind of they're looking for that humanitarian connection, if you will, now that they're no longer in service, but still want to be of service somehow. Very cool. So, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you on the, the blue skies part of things, how you work closely, you monitor weather, and maybe you're even in contact and in communication with certain communities that maybe will be seeing some kind of weather event or, or flooding or whatever that cause may be. What are some of the organizations that Team Rubicon work with? Is it like local third authorities, television stations or hospitals? It depends on the area um, and how how open they are. You know, I I know here in North Florida, my relationships are with the volunteer organizations primarily. So VOAD, which is Volunteer Organizations Acting in Disasters. VOADs are in each state. And then there's also COADs, which are community organizations acting in disasters. We we get into those groups because that helps us to network with other organizations like shelters and food banks and clothing donations and churches that respond to disasters. So that network, I don't know that many people realize how big the disaster response network is. There are a lot of organizations that work very closely. We rely heavily on our emergency managers because they're going to be the ones with the most up-to-date information, right? If a weather event is going to hit their area, they're aware of it. They know what's going on. They know what their capabilities as a community is. And so we go to them first. It's, it's us asking permission to kind of join the club, right? And once we get in, we, pull, we can pull from those VOAD and COADs and kind of get everybody on the same page and work together to, to kind of move forward. So blue skies and gray skies, that really has stuck with me, maybe because I'm a meteorologist, but <laughs> I really, really like love to hear this. And honestly, Team Rubicon, it's an incredible organization helping many communicate around the country with volunteers that continuously look for that humanitarian connection. Of course, we thank you for saving lives and really helping those. But Kayla, we want to thank you so much for joining us. The WSVN7 weather team would also like to thank you, plus the rest of the staff at Team Rubicon for not only taking the time to speak with us, but for all of the selfless help you provide around the country and around the world, really. Your great efforts have not gone unnoticed, and we send you a big thank you from many around the world. Thanks again. Thank you. For more information on how you can volunteer or join Team Rubicon, visit teamrubiconusa.org. That's all for now. From the 7 Weather Team, I'm meteorologist Erica Delgado. Thank you, Erica. Our next podcast drops September 6th. I hope you'll join us again. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, please send us an email at wxpodcast at wsvn.com.
This podcast is produced by the Seven Weather Team. Original music by Chris Crane, with technical support by Stephen Sejas. Thank you for listening to Weather or Not.